On Wednesday this week, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak unveiled the government's autumn budget and the outcome of their 2021 spending review. The budget described the upcoming changes to taxation, while the spending review set out how much money each government department will get over the next three years. There were certainly some eye-catching announcements, including big increases in government spending and investment, tax cuts for businesses and an increase in the national living wage. But what did the budget and spending review mean for our education system, from primary schools all the way up to universities and beyond? Which education institutions are the winners and losers from the Chancellor's decisions? And should head teachers, college principals and university vice-chancellors be feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the months ahead? To help us unravel the contents of the spending review in this inaugural episode of the EDSK Think Tank's new podcast, we are joined by two guests who know all about spending reviews from their own careers in and around government. Jonathan Simons is a partner and head of the education practice at Public First, a specialist public policy consultancy, and Andy Westwood is Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester and a director of the Productivity Institute. Both Jonathan and Andy are also members of EDSK's advisory board. I'm Tom Richmond, the director of EDSK. Welcome to today's episode, and it is now time for us to go inside your Welcome to Inside Your Ed, the podcast from the education and skills think tank EDSK that looks inside the latest stories from across the education system in England, including schools, colleges, universities and apprenticeships. You can find out more about EDSK's research at edsk.org or on Twitter at EDSK Think Tank. Jonathan, if we can turn to you first, obviously there's a lot of anticipation around what might be happening with schools funding as we headed into the budget and spending review. Can you just kick off by talking us through what you think the big changes were that we saw to schools funding in the Chancellor's announcements? So I think we saw three main things on the school side of the house. So the first of which was just a straight up increase into schools budgets. Uh, That is totaling £4.7 billion but that's the total additive amount over the next three years. So it's not a one-off increase. That's the absolute complete amount added over the next three years. The Treasury says that's worth about £1,500 per pupil. But again, that's the total additional amount that schools will be getting over the next three years. They won't see that from, from next year. I think the second thing that has been announced is a further two years worth of recovery catch-up. So this is the Kevin Collins plan phase two. Um, that was £1.8 billion. I think it's safe to say that whilst that's quite a lot of money in in some respects, it was a lot less than other people were asking for, certainly less than Kevin Collins was asking for, uh, less than other organisations like EPI, for example, were talking about £13 billion. ARC and various other people were, again, similarly focusing around that number, so it's a lot less than that. And the third amount that's been announced is uh, an additional amount of support for various things to do with 16 to 19 funding, SEND funding, and the like. So there's been various additional top-ups. But the main the main thing uh, is a sort of increase to per-pupil funding, which will take it back in real terms to roughly where it was in 2009-10. slash 
there's a, a, a hidden devil in the detail in these things. Well, two hidden devils in the details. One is that, of course, that doesn't account for if inflation is higher than expected. So it's possible that, for example, as energy bills are rising, that will eat into the additional funding that's been given by government. The second and most problematic thing is about what happens to teacher pay. So the Chancellor announced that the public sector pay freeze is ending. Uh, the STRB, the School Teachers Review Body, will at some point make a recommendation on how much teachers' pay should be increased by, and that will have to be met from within that additional amount announced by the Chancellor yesterday. So it is possible, indeed probable, that a decent chunk of that extra cash will effectively be accounted for by inflation and pay. Okay, so that's really interesting. So on the face of it, we see a £1,500 increase per pupil, which in normal times I'm sure would be very welcomed by head teachers. But you're saying that that money is not going to come straight away. That's something we're going to be aiming towards. But you're also thinking that inflation might start to bite into that too. So by the time we get to that extra 1500 we might not be seeing as much benefit as you might initially assume. Is that yeah, a fair Yeah, and of course the 1500 won't come in one chunk. What will happen is every year when school teachers get their budgets, it goes up by a little bit in cash terms. By the end of this spending review period, which is 2024 through to 2025, it will be roughly £1,500 higher than it is now. But as you say, by that point, you've got three years' worth of inflation, you've got additional pay claims, you've got whoever knows else knows what. It is unlikely, if you're a head teacher, that you will suddenly see a massive improvement to your financial situation over and above what you've got today. Just looking at some of the reaction that we've had to that, Paul Whiteman from the NEHT, he said that getting that funding back up to where it was in 2010, he said it was, quote, no proud boast as it represented a failure to invest in children's futures for over a decade. To what extent do you subscribe to that point of view? In one sense, of course, he's right. If all that we've done by 2025 is say we're doing exactly what we did in 2010 in real terms, then effectively he's right. I mean, what we'll have seen with school funding over that 15-year period is essentially a sort of elongated U-shape, where in 2010 it started to decrease in real terms. The Conservatives obviously had an electoral price paid to some extent, in 2015 and in 2017, the school cuts campaign was incredibly effective on the doorstep and a lot of Tory MPs and would-be Tory MPs said it was a big thing. They've effectively made several interventions since 2015 to try and partially reverse that. So Justine Greening got some money out of the Treasury when she was Secretary of State. They made a commitment in the last spending review to match 2015 levels. They're now making a commitment to match 2010 levels. So I think the Conservatives would say they have put a lot of money into fixing this they wouldn't say, to fix their earlier mistake. But Paul is right. Effectively, what we've had over 15 years is a decrease followed by a reversal of that decrease. There's no additional real-terms funding at all. Let's turn our attention then to the the second big point that you made around recovery money. So this has obviously been a very high-profile topic for for quite some time now. Uh, So Sir Kevin Collins, as you mentioned, was appointed by the government to lead their education recovery efforts from covid He resigned in June this year because he apparently asked the government for £15 billion to lead, really to fund that education recovery effort. But the government at the time only offered him around an extra £2 billion. What we've seen now from the spending review is that the government appeared to be saying we are going to give some extra money, but it looks like from what we can see that the total amount they're now offering with all of the announcements added together is around five billion, which still feels a long way below what Kevin Collins is asking for. How would you describe where the government have got to with that extra funding for COVID recovery? Well, they've spent less on it than they have spent on cutting alcohol duties, which 
is not the way I would prioritise government expenditure. I think, well, there are two main differences between what the government has done and what the Kevin Collins plan has done, one of which is just it's simply a smaller quantum. So Kevin talked about three things. He talked about improvements to teachers, tuition and time. And the government has accepted the teacher element and it's accepted the tuition element. And indeed, most of what the government's £5 billion is now going on is tuition. They've just done less in both of those chunks than he recommended. Although, of course, we don't actually know what he recommended because his, his reports weren't public. But, you know, they've been leaked fairly extensively. The big distinction is around time. And actually, the most expensive thing of, of Kevin Collins' original plan was extending the school day, which the Treasury has always been very, very sceptical about. We were promised a review by the DfE, which was meant to be published yesterday. I look forward to it with bated breath. I'm sure it's very long and very extensive and absolutely will be published at some point. But we're not going to be extending the school day. There was no prospect that the Treasury uh, agreed to that. And indeed, it was briefed as such to the weekend papers. So the major distinction, for better or worse, is that the government is now not paying for an extension of the school day. And that, that accounts for quite a big difference between the five billion and the 15. I think advocacy organisations will put a stake in the ground for money. That is almost always going to be more than they think they're going to get or indeed that they need. But I think most people, even when they are privately assessing the quantum, I think five billion is below what most independent organisations would have argued was needed to, to, to do academic and emotional recovery. Yeah, I mean, just looking at some of the, the reaction that we've had, uh, Jeff Barton, who's the head of the Association for School and College Leaders, said that the, uh, the extra 1.8 billion that we did see in the Chancellor's announcements was, quote, nowhere near what is needed. And Kevin Courtney, uh, Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, said that the the catch-up money was, quote, completely inadequate. Uh, And he suggested that it means education recovery will be done on the cheap. I mean, in terms of £5 billion, you've mentioned that, okay, it might not be enough to fund an extended school day, but do we have any sense of what kind of impact we could get from an investment of five billion? Because it's not an insignificant amount. No, it's amount not. And, and one of the frustrating things that I think you're meant to say allies of Gavin Williamson say is that he got quite a lot of money out of the Treasury outside of a spending review. So he got the original, whatever it was, two or three billion out of Treasury. And that's a, a vast sum of money. Like in normal terms, a Secretary of State getting a multi billion pound settlement is a cause for celebration. I do find it slightly irksome, I have to say, that at least some of the people in the school sector who have spent the past six months saying, we don't like the term catch up, children aren't behind, don't be offensive, this is a really derogatory term, we just need to get back on with things, are now then saying, where's all our money for catch up? You can't have it both ways. You either think that children do need additional support and therefore they need funding, but then don't spend six months talking about why catch-up is a terrible term, why we don't need additional focus on catch-up. You either do or you don't. My view is we do. There's lots of empirical evidence, for example, from people like Renaissance Education and EPI that have shown that there is a pretty significant academic drop-off. And Andy might talk about universities and colleges in a bit, but a lot of universities saying, you know, first-year students coming in no less than they did previously, right? Because they've had at least one of the last couple of years disrupted. Of course, children are behind. If they weren't behind, why are we spending money putting them through school? If schools didn't add any value, why are we spending it? Of course, they know less. That's not a criticism. It's a fact we've had a global pandemic. So kids know less. We need to put in some money to support them. It's almost certainly not enough. But some of the school sector have not helped themselves by being dismissive of catch up. 
So let's have a chat about one of the other areas that you mentioned where the government has now put additional money in, which is special educational needs. So this is another area which uh, for a long time now has been a lot of pressure on government to do more. And they've announced uh, some very significant sums, uh, £2.6 billion over the next spending review period for school places for children uh, with special educational needs and disabilities, which they claim is tripling the amount of money they were putting in into capital. Can you briefly explain what we mean by capital spending and whether you think this is the right way to go about improving how we support children with special educational needs? So capital spending is what the Treasury calls money that is um, buying things, practical things, money that doesn't have to be spent every year. Money that has to be spent every year on things like salaries is known as revenue spending. Money that is spent on practical things, normally buildings, but it can mean computers or other kinds of physical kit, is capital spending. For various long and boring reasons, it's a lot easier for the government to spend capital than it is to spend revenue, because broadly speaking, you don't have to spend every year. Once you've built a building, that's it, it's done until you need to refurbish it. Uh, you can The fiscal chancellor's fiscal rules allow them to borrow for capital in a way that you don't allow him to borrow for revenue. So generally, and this is the case for all governments, it's easier to spend capital money than revenue money. And that's why the Treasury has announced money for capital. I'm not, I'm not averse to building new SEN special schools, 2.6 billion is actually quite a lot. These schools tend to be quite small, so they're not that expensive to build. So 2.6 billion will build you a lot of new buildings. The fundamental issue with SEN, which Nadim Zahawi has talked about, is what is is the high needs budget, right? The money that's spent for SEN kids that comes out of revenue spending. That is a budget that is under a significant amount of pressure. Every single local authority would tell you that that is a, a, a real desperate need. 2.6 billion of capital doesn't change that and uh, so the, one of the biggest questions which DfE will be grappling with which I know they want to try and focus on in the next few months is trying to solve the kind of the SEND revenue budget the high needs costs uh, and there was nothing in the spending review about that. Thank you Jonathan. Andy let us turn our attention to some slightly older pupils uh, in the system so Jonathan's talked us through what we've happened with primary schools and secondary schools largely but there are a lot of announcements as well and indeed it looks like on the face of it at least a lot more money for what we broadly call skills can you just kick off by talking us through some of the big headline announcements in skills from the chancellor yesterday Yes, of course. So, so the big headline, which actually came out on Sunday rather than in the uh, in the speech, or certainly it was repeated in the speech, but the headline uh, accompanying the the rhetoric and the rhetoric is kind of you know skills revolution, skills superpower, um, was uh, three point eight billion uh, as a headline figure. Again, like in schools, that's a kind of whole Parliament figure, so it kind of covers spending each year. Um, and it, it's, it breaks down in, in some quite interesting ways. Um, there is, for example, a new scheme uh, called Multiply, uh, which is designed to help kind of the, the vast numbers, uh, the several million adults in England that have kind of poor numeracy skills. And that's going to be funded out of what, what eventually becomes the UK Shared Prosperity Fund, which is a replacement for EU cash. Alongside that, we've got an increase in, uh, well, it looks like an increase in, in that 3.8 billion, an increase in the amount that is kind of filtering through from the National Skills Fund, which was first announced in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto at the general election. This, this I have to say, has become a bit like the kind of magic porridge pot of uh, FE funding. It's paid for a lot of things. Um, it, it sort of breaks down at sort of roughly 400, 500 uh, million a year. 
And uh, it's paid for things like uh, boot camps. It's paid for kind of, you know, lots of one-off initiatives um, and will continue to do so. So one of the kind of uh, sort of sets of details that accompanies that 3.8 billion headline figure is is the fact that there will be more of those kind of employment-specific, employer-specific, sector-specific investments, which the Treasury are very keen on. They've always been keen on kind of a, a, a work-focused setting for uh, vocational training. I have to say DFE and to some extent colleges are, are a little bit less keen on that stuff or less able to do it in the way that uh, other providers might be able to do it. But you can see with things like HGV kind of boot camps and stuff, these are also quite sort of populist interventions or sort of short-term things that kind of need to be spent but don't sit very comfortably in the broader skills system. There are uh, little bits of expansion for traineeships and apprenticeships. Uh, not entirely clear how th- those will work. But um, the, other, the other sort of two big real headlines from that 3.8 billion are kind of one that there's a bit more money pumped into T-levels or the capacity to deliver T-levels. And, you know, going back to T-levels, there's a lot of things wrong with T-levels in my view. But one of the things that's right with T-levels is that it has extra teaching. Um, you know, they are qualifications with more taught hours. So, you know, students doing T-levels kind of learn for longer and they learn more about kind of whatever pathway they're in. And uh, some of this money is to make sure that that kind of more of that teaching is paid for. Um, As Jonathan said, in terms of capital for schools, there's also capital for colleges uh, to to teach T-levels. So in other words, some extra capacity, some extra equipment to kind of make that happen. And and then and then the other sort of the other sort of big thing that kind of runs throughout the settlement is that um, Treasury are effectively recognising that there's a, a demographic kind of bulge going through FE, and that you know essentially this spending review has to pick up the tab for extra numbers of 16 to 19 year olds, and that breaks down into both kind of revenue funding and capital funding. You know, you need the places and the equipment, and you also just need the money kind of over a longer period to sort of deliver this stuff. So it, um, as ever, you, you know, if you add it all up and, uh, um, you know, you take the, the cumulative figures and, you, you know, you add in some of the sort of pet projects like Multiply, which which to me still sounds a bit like an Ed Sheeran album uh, rather than an adult skills initiative. But, um, you know, I'm sure it'll be very popular uh, like he is. You, you know, you add it together, you get a big number. The reality is that kind of, you know, there'll be a lot of colleges that don't see very much of this. I think on Sunday morning when it was leaked as one of the early sort of pre-announcements, David Hughes of the AOC described it more as skills evolution than revolution. Uh, I'm not sure I would even call it evolution. I think it's it's paying out cash to stand still in kind of FE as a whole. And then there's some little pots of cash for for the particular projects that the government the government wants to see uh, backed over the next three years. Some of which FE will be very happy to deliver. Others, you know, aren't really going to kind of be part of their mainstream delivery very you know very much. This government over the last few years, and certainly since the last election and the last election manifesto, have been very keen to push their credentials with with technical education. And they've been very explicit. They see technical education playing a huge role, not just for, for uh, with schools and colleges and compulsory education, but also at higher levels too. They've been very keen to talk up the role of local colleges in a way that perhaps uh, we haven't seen over the past decade. So do you think the package that you've outlined 
matches that kind of rhetoric that the government have said, we want to push the profile and the esteem of technical education. Have you seen that in the comprehensive spending review announcements? Uh, no, uh, or, or it's probably fairer to say not yet. Um, you know, a big part of that technical push comes in higher education, level four and five. And one of the, the sort of big headlines, or rather the big empty page in the uh, spending review was the lack of a response to the AUGA, uh, the AUGA report, which is now, you know, pushing three years old. So, you know, at some point soon, you know, there's a, there's a part two to this, which is where, what, what is government's push going to be there for the upper levels of technical education, the level four and five, you know, which... Um, which government has set a lot of store by, and depending on you know which side of the FEHE split you you kind of come from, you know, is also part of that rhetoric that says we're going to rebalance away from the full time degree at level six to the kind of technical at level four and five. So on on that we don't know. Um, it, it, the, the spending allocations um, for the next three years, I think, make that a little bit harder to do in in this period. Um, but there's still some policy detail that, that we're now promised in the next weeks. Um, we'll see when that lands. I think the other part to that, the place the place part to that, which you touch on, again, we're going to have to wait a little while because the levelling up white paper, which was also expected at one point alongside the spending review, is going to be uh, delayed until the end of the year. And, you know, both of those are entirely reasonable. You know, Michael Gove is new at the Department of Leveling Up and Nadim Zahawi is new at the Department for Education. There's no reason why they have to get everything out on, on the kind of day of the budget. There are, you know, plenty of people are talking about that. But, um, you know, both of those are going to be absolutely crucial, not just for the kind of technical education agenda, but for the colleges and universities in their place kind of civic agenda too. And, um, you, you know, we're going to have to wait and see or, uh, you know, for both of those sectors, we're going to have to continue lobbying hard on both of those issues if we think um, those agendas are important to us. And obviously, I would say that they are. You've already mentioned adult learning, which obviously has uh, a part to play in lots of different agendas around technical education, levelling up and beyond that. So you've touched on the National Skills Fund already, uh, the extra investment going into that, this new multiply programme for adult numeracy as well. Um, Stephen Evans, uh, Chief Executive of the Learning and Work Institute said, it's good to see investment in skills rising again after a lost decade of cuts. However, it looks like this only restores some of the previous cuts, so won't be enough to transform Britain into a skills superpower. How much do you agree with that? Do you think that's a fair analysis or do you see things differently? Um, I always agree with Stephen. We used to work together at the Treasury. So, uh, you know, I think he's spot on in his analysis there. I think, um, you, you know, a bit like the school settlement, you, you, you know, at best, this begins to take us back to the levels that we saw in 2010. Um, you, you know, so on, on the adult funding, Rishi Sunak said that the, the increase will amount to some kind of, you know, 42%, about 26% in real terms. Um, but again, you, you know, you can you can throw about those figures if you're increasing from such a low base. And the reality of adult skills funding for the last decade is be has been that it's been a very low base. Um, so you know, we're beginning to kind of repair some of that. But going back to the um, you know the undone bits of policy, the the AUGA response, the the kind of the details that we're still waiting for. Some of that is likely to be a consultation on lifelong learning 
and you know the entitlements that in the last budget we uh, we saw planned for 2025 um and you, you know we'll we'll see how that how that kind of begins to fit in so that might be a missing piece in this jigsaw in the same way that some of the some of the issues around level 4 and 5 or kind of higher education more broadly will be missing pieces in in the jigsaw and um you know funding for that fund, funding for kind of part-time higher education from level 4 upwards has also been kind of in a difficult place, as has participation. And that's something I think Stephen uh, talks uh, uh, very regularly about too. But again, you, you, know, um, you, you know, when that's all done, and if that's all good, and in my view, if it's brought forward, I think 2025 is, you know, it's, it, that's the next spending review, the next parliament. Um, a lot of this stuff needs to be done now. It certainly needs to be done more quickly if you're going to bandy around words like, you know, a kind of skills revolution, uh, um, you, you know, in <laughs> various revolutions, they didn't say, you know, let's man the barricades, but not for another five years. So, so I think, I think kind of, you know, maybe, uh, but there's still a lot of detail before we can get anywhere near those kind of claims. And just briefly, you, you touched on apprenticeships as well. Um, this is one of the budgets and spending reviews um, in recent history, which taught very little about apprenticeships. In fact, the government didn't really have very much to say. Do you think we should assume from that that government thinks it's pretty much job done in terms of the world of apprenticeships, apart from minor tweaks? Or do you think there might be still more to come from that agenda? Uh, I, well, personally, I think there, there does need to be more coming from that agenda. Um you, you know, lots of issues, particularly around young participation in apprenticeships. Uh, you know, like many things in skills, it's very easy to talk about apprenticeships in kind of superficial terms. And I would argue that many governments have done precisely that. The detail of actually delivering this stuff is much, much harder. Uh, and that isn't just taking the levy and kind of, you know, spending it on things that kind of the government would like as much as kind of employers would like. It also comes down to sort of, you know, who, who are these opportunities for? And we've seen not just over the pandemic, but before we've seen the the traditional opportunities, if you like, for 16 to 19 year olds fall and fall and fall. Um, and we often see apprenticeships banded around as the kind of alternative to a full time degree. But the reality, you know, the numbers of level four plus apprenticeships uh, for people leaving school or college at 18, 19 are tiny. So, so I think, you know, there's something very, very significant to address there as well as, you know, the relationship between apprenticeships and kind of broader in-work learning. I mean, you know, we've used apprenticeships as a catch-all program and a catch-all kind of, you know, soundbite. The reality is there's, there's lots of things we need to fix in the apprenticeship system, but also that broader kind of in-work training system, which is still underdone uh, in terms of kind of, you know, the options that people have in different jobs at, at different stages of their, their career. But it's also just underdone in the sense that kind of, you know, employers aren't really investing enough in it. Um, you know, there aren't as many hours spent training at work as there have been kind of in previous decades. So there's a kind of big cultural thing that we still need to address there too. Thank you, Andy. Jonathan, let's move further up the age range, shall we? Schools and colleges we've talked about. Let's have a talk about university funding as well. So Andy has mentioned the Orga Review, which was, uh, of course, commissioned by the previous Prime Minister and re uh, was published back in 2019, which set out a huge raft of potential changes to the whole post 
18 education system across universities, colleges and apprenticeships. A lot of people were hoping that by this point, almost two and a half years on, that we'd know more about which of those recommendations from the org review the government is looking to perhaps implement. But when it came to the spending review yesterday, we didn't hear about tuition fees. We didn't hear about student loans. We didn't hear about any possible changes to how many people might go to university. What do you think we should read into that? And what does that mean for the HE sector at this moment in time? Well, I think I think Andy's being slightly harsh. We had a whole sentence about the Orga report. Uh, I mean, what, what more do you possibly want? The more I thought about yesterday's spending review, the more baffled I become by it, because for the last two years, we've had a one-year settlement. Normally, you have a three-year spending review cycle, and that's what yesterday's was. But the last couple of years, we've had a one-year spending review settlement. And that's for reasonably obvious reasons, which is we've been in the middle of a pandemic. It's impossible to know what the public finances look like. You can't set even medium-term spending commitments when you don't know what your tax base is going to be like and you don't know how much money you're going to need to spend on the NHS. So I think everyone has broadly understood the fact that government has, outside of immediate COVID spending, more or less marked time for the past two years, right? Nothing has really changed. But this was a three-year spending review, and much of the thinking has already been done. Like the government civil servants who weren't involved in immediate COVID recovery have been thinking about HE funding changes and skills funding changes for a number of years. You know, they were in theory ready to do this this time last year, if last year had been a three-year spending review. So I can't quite understand why we had such a light spending review. It was it was it was thin, regardless of whether you think it was good or bad, it was just thin. We didn't have a lot of things being answered. And as far as I can work out, that was for a couple of reasons. One is that we had a reshuffle and we had a load of brand new secretaries of state who didn't really have time to work out what their priorities were. But that could have still led to quite a substantive spending review, just one run entirely on the Treasury's terms. And indeed, I thought that was why they might have done a reshuffle a few weeks ago, because it just allows the Treasury to say to the new secretary of state, here you go, here's your settlement, shut up and like it. Uh, and, and there we go, job done. But we could have still had a substantive spending review that did talk about skills reform, that did talk about HE reform, and essentially telling the Dean Zahari, well, look, you've just come into post, it's your first cabinet minister's post, like, like it or lump it. Um, and essentially, we haven't had that because government is still continuing to argue about it. They're still continuing to argue about what to do about skills, and they're still continuing to argue about what to do about HE. And the two of those are related because although they need not be, in practice, they are trading off of the same sum of money. If you really want to have a skills revolution, it's going to cost a lot of money. In practice, a decent chunk of that is going to have to come from taking it out of HE. And in practice, that also probably means the amount spent on the student loan book. It doesn't have to be. Government money is fungible. You could take it from wherever you want. But, but in practice... And so those two questions are linked, right? Why haven't we had more on skills is linked to because we haven't yet had a resolution on Orga. And, and and that is because we are still in this interminable debate around, you know, if you want to spend less money on HE, you either need fewer students to go or you need to spend less money on them or you need them to pay back more of the money you spend on them via fees. Those are your only three variables. You can trim a bit around the sides. You can play around with grants. You can play around with, you know, geographic weighting. You can shave it off London weighting and arts funding and all the various bits and pieces. But if you really substantively want to free up billions of pounds a year, it's fewer students or you spend less on them 
via the student loan book, or you make them pay back more, or some combination of it. Th those are really your only variables, and you then debate about who and, 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 and so on. And, and government just can't agree. And, and, you know, the sort of mooted solution, which is probably some variant of keep tuition fees the same in cash levels, have fewer students going to university, essentially keep them flat now, the demographic boom of students coming through, you know, don't give them funded university places, and reduce the graduate repayment threshold, seems to be the outline of the deal that's on the table. What that means is, is, is in some sense, is a kind of a triple whammy for um, not actually particularly students, but bluntly parents of students, which is the, the Conservatives' core electoral coalition. What you're essentially saying to parents of 17 and 18-year-olds is some of you will not get, now get to go to university. And what you're saying to parents of 21, 22, 23-year-olds is your student, uh, your, sorry, your graduate kids are going to have to pay back a lot of money. Um, so to give you a really practical example, one of the junior members of my team, who is uh, in her sort of late 20s at the moment, she's got a student loan, she's got a postgraduate loan. Uh, she's, you know, on a sort of fairly standard junior policy wonk London salary. And she's saying that her marginal tax rate, even at the moment, is over 50%, right? By the time she's paid tax, NI, student loan, postgraduate loan. Now, if they, if they, government, if government simultaneously reduces her repayment threshold from 27 to 25, 23, 21, her graduate repayment rates go up quite significantly and her marginal tax rate goes up very, very significantly. She's paying a high, higher marginal tax rate than almost anyone else in the company. Um, that is the electoral coalition, her and her parents, that Rishi Sunak does not want to irritate. And the Treasury have other views as to how they want to do that, and but they, they can't get agreement on it. So the very long answer to your question is, it has been once again kicked down the road because they cannot fundamentally resolve the issue of what you do about it. Now, you could just decide to leave it alone. I mean, effectively, that is what is happening. We are not fundamentally changing the HE sector. Orga made a lot of recommendations, a lot of which DfE have done. But on the fundamental one of, do you want to reduce tuition fees, reduce graduate repayment rate? The longer it goes on, the more in practice means we're not going to change anything. But if we don't, then it's very, very hard to see a proper skills revolution happen because you're not going to have the funding and you're also not going to switch the people. You know, unless you radically improve the number of level four plus apprenticeships, unless you really improve higher technical qualifications, unless you create a funding route and a capacity route to take thousands and tens of thousands of 18, 19 year olds, 20 year olds every year, whether would be students or retraining adults and say, here is an alternative pathway for you that is well respected and well funded. Unless you do that, you ain't going to get change. It's just not going to happen. The funding system and the delivery system shift a decent chunk of these 18-year-olds into HE. And for the adults, it's a sort of, you know, there's there's a few bits of adult retraining, but nothing significant. If you really want to change that, and there are good policy reasons for wanting to do it, you have to do something active. And that's not multiply. And it's not boot camps. Those are all fine and worthy and good things. But they are not systemic changes of the type which government claims to want to do. Uh, they have to make a decision as to whether they want to do that or not. Andy, uh, Jonathan has uh, very neatly outlined where the government is struggling to agree on areas of higher education policy. But one area where the government does seem to agree is on research and development, or R&D, as we, as we often call it. Um, my observation from yesterday was that I don't often see someone given £20 billion in a spending review and then there'd be an air of disappointment in response to that. Um, what did you make of the £20 billion that the government said they're going to spend 
on R&D over the next few years. And could you explain why some people were, in fact, a little bit disappointed by getting £20 billion? Well, all I can say, Tom, is that you obviously haven't spent enough time in universities to understand why people are disappointed with with that kind of uh, increase. Um, I, I think, um, I, I mean, in, in one sense, the story is relatively straightforward. Uh, uh, you, you know, over the last couple of years, different bits of government, including the Chancellor, have said, we're going to spend £22 billion by 2024, 25 um, and that will help us down the road to our target of meeting 2.4% of GDP spending on R&D. Um, and, um, you know, and that target has slipped. So it, uh, the 2.4% target by 2027 is still in place in theory. Um, but, the, but the government's spending on R&D has slipped. So we're now only going to spend that 22 billion by 26, 27. Uh, and the 20 billion figure by 24, 25, as you rightly say, is still a very big increase. Uh, but it's less than the one that people thought they were getting. And, uh, you know, and that, that in short, is the, is the reason why kind of, you know, people are sounding disappointed with what looks like a very good settlement over the next uh, two or three years. I think, um, like everything else with, with the spending review, you need to unpack it a bit. So, you know, there are some big questions about what government is going to spend that money on. Um, they've separated out what they refer to as the core research budget, which is what most people in universities would recognise as the money that comes through uh, research councils and uh, the quality related funding um, uh, settlement QR, the kind of the money that's allocated uh, every time uh, uh, the research, um, uh, the REF is conducted. So, you know, so, so, so that's, that's one part of it. But there's also quite a lot uh, allocated to one of other things, more, more applied research, if you like. So a boost for Innovate UK, close to market, kind of close to application uh, funding. Uh, ARIA, um, you know, the, uh, the brainchild of kind of Dominic Cummings is, is, is still on course for kind of, you know, just, just short of a billion as a budget over that same period. Um, and then there's a kind of, you know, a bit of a slush fund for all sorts of other things that they might spend money on. You know, which which is which is the way this government has spent a lot of money in a lot of different agendas. You know, like leveling up, for example. So, um, you know, there's a there's a bit of a sense and a bit of a fear, I think, in those bits of the traditional R and D sector in in universities and in other places, where you know they're not sure whether all of that money is going to come down the track to them, um, and that you know, like like towns and councils bidding for leveling up funds you know there might be a lot of kind of pet projects that government wants to spend that money on over that same period so i think i think there's a little bit of cynicism there uh, alongside alongside the kind of disappointment that that the government isn't quite going as fast as they were led to believe and and just on that last point i mean i've already mentioned dominic cummings once i mean th- this is one of the great kind of ironies of of there are many uh, about dominic of course um but, you know, at the time when he was in number 10, he wanted to go very quickly on science spending. Um, and the Treasury always wanted to go more slowly. So there was always a bit of a battle about when do you double R&D spending? Do you do it, you know, straight away uh, or do you do it kind of further down the track? And obviously with, with Cummings gone, Treasury are completely in the ascendancy and they've taken the decision that they can spend this money slightly later. Um, it, like you say, it's still a good settlement. But let's see. Let's see what they spend it on, <laughs> um, and let's uh, you know. Let's see what that really stacks up to. Again, like in the skills kind of debate, 
let's see if that if that then stacks up to the kind of science superpower rhetoric that we also hear so much about. Okay, so we have covered a lot in today's episode. We have talked about schools, we've talked about colleges, we've talked about skills, apprenticeships and higher education as well. There was certainly a lot of money being talked about, but it sounds as though there's some pretty reasonable questions around how that will translate into real world practice and what impact all these announcements might have. So I guess as a final thought from both of you, um, I'm just wondering how you would describe the overall spending review package that we've got for the next three years. Are you feeling positive about it? Are you feeling concerned about it? Are you feeling cautiously optimistic? How would you describe what the Chancellor has given us? Jonathan, if I could start with you. So I've already called it thin, and I think I would again call it thin. I think a lot still remains to be resolved in what's called the business planning process. So departments now have their high level settlement and they will work out at a more granular level how that money is now going to be sent between their priorities. That's normally a fairly sedate, sober bit of business that people don't really care about. I suspect the Treasury will care much more about that than they do normally because they haven't set it out too much in the spending review. So I think I think that's the thing I I think is the next the next thing for people to turn their attention to. Um, I mean, it is worth noting you know, this is probably the subject of a whole other podcast, but we are now having a post-war record high tax take. Spending is not that high, and we are still running a deficit. And about 40% of all our spending at the moment is going on the NHS and a decent chunk on pensions as well. That direction of travel is only going one way. You know, there's real, if I was the permanent secretary of the treasury, I would be worried a lot about the 10-year, 15-year, 20-year projections, right? Economic growth, once you've done the COVID blip of the next couple of years, which is projected to boom, is pretty anemic, right? We've got below 2% trend growth. Productivity is not great. I mean, maybe AI and technology will solve it all, but it's it's pretty hard to see, right? If you're thinking about 10-year, 20-year projections of tax income and public spending income, it doesn't look massively rosy. Uh, and so, you know, if we thought this spending review was tight, you know, wait till SR31. Very interesting. And Andy, Jonathan described the spending view as thin. How do you see this overall package for our education and skills system? Well, I wouldn't disagree uh, with Jonathan's assessment. And, and I would, I would kind of, I guess I would add to it slightly in the, in the you know, really what we heard in the, the budget and the spending review was a kind of part two. Part one was when the health and social care levy and the kind of tax increases were announced and, and you know, the settlement for uh, the Department for Health and Social Care. And you know, if you look at if if you look at both of those together, you can see the tax uh, the tax rises. You can also see that by taking the NHS out of uh, the day to day sort of stuff in a, of a spending review, that it's enabled uh, it's enabled the chancellor to kind of allocate kind of you know some rises within the envelope that's left after you've done after you've done the kind of health and social care stuff. Um, but you know the reality is is that kind of you know, you know for the vast majority of departments ed- education just ticks above the 2010 line so you know in in most areas it's just above and and overall as a department it's just above where we were in 2010 um for for virtually every other department there's still a very long way below you, you know their department their departmental budgets might all be increasing in the spending review period but like with adult skills they're increasing from a low a very low base and um, 
you, you know, so 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 I guess one of the reasons then why why this is thin <laughs> is that if you look at it from that perspective, there still isn't that much money to go around on on the kinds of things that people in the sectors that you, you know we're discussing are interested in. You, you know, so if you're in schools, you know, there's there's not that much on catch up. If you're in colleges, it's not yet a, a, a skills superpower. Even if you're in research and in higher education, you know, there's still there's still detail to come. Or you, you, you know you're just you, you're not sure that the kind of headline numbers are going to make that much difference on the ground to the kind of stuff that you do. So so I I would agree you know it's thin, but there's also you know there's also still a long way to go in in policy detail how you roll this money out, what you spend it on, where it lands, and you know so I think Jonathan's absolutely right. You know that business planning element, you know the policy detail that kind of gets layered onto this is still going to be pretty critical but overall overall this this is um this is a kind of budget and spending review process that's highly political um it's you know it's it's created a lot of headlines that that the government wanted to create but i think in terms of delivery you know the world isn't going to feel like it's quite matching those headlines in the way that kind of either either voters or kind of you know people in different communities particularly in the kind of you know the, the Midlands and the North, you know, they may not see the benefits either because their their disposable income is being squeezed, uh, um, you know, their tax rates are going up, or if you're, you know, if you're working in any of those kind of education sectors, you, you, you know, you might look back on the kind of headlines in this budget and kind of go, well, that's not how it feels on on the ground. Thank you, Andy. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, thank you to both Jonathan Simons and Andy Westwood for sharing their thoughts and analysis with us today. Don't forget that you can send us your views about today's discussion and the spending review using the hashtag InsideYourEd. If you enjoy this episode, then of course, remember to hit subscribe and please rate our podcast. And we hope you'll join us again soon when we next go Inside Your Ed. Bye-bye for now.